If you will, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we ought to, uh, that one of the ways, one of the benefits of actually singing is that we encourage one another. We encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and uh, I find myself regularly encouraged by our singing together. Um, your voices uh, are wonderful, uh, whatever you may think of them. They're, they're wonderful, and uh, I'm, in, I'm encouraged by them. Um, I am thankful for uh, the team of men and women who are dedicated week by week uh, to playing, to uh, facilitating through sound and, and words and all of those things. And um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, for that uh, on the second Sundays of each month, Chris is going to take the lead on music. I think that would be good for uh, all of us, for the team, for me. Um, you see quite enough of me, don't you? Uh, you? There's no need to amen or say yes or sign a petition or anything like that. Um, uh, but we come back to Exodus 4, not because this was specially chosen for this day, but because we are working our way through Exodus. So once we read it, you may think to yourself, well, this is a rather odd text for Mother's Day. Aren't you supposed to do something else, like go to Proverbs 31 or maybe 1 Samuel and talk about Hannah or something else? Well, uh, I, I want you to hang in there if you're a little uh, skeptical, because I think uh, as we just see what the Lord says, we'll see its relevance for all of life, including uh, motherhood. But let's read a page. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in front of you. Exodus chapter 4 is on page 47 of that Bible. And so we'll read the first 17 verses. This is what the Spirit says. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you, the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? 
Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put, word, put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take the staff, take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, there is none above you. There is none before you. All of time is in your hands. Your throne remains and stands forever. With you alone are all power and all glory. And we are in awe that you have chosen to speak to us, to show yourself to us. And so we pray as we look to your word today that you will fill your servant with your spirit, that your word might be clear to strengthen your people, to call home those who don't know Jesus, to glorify you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you don't know where we're at in the story, as we come to Exodus 4, you'll need to know that God's people, Israel, Abraham's descendants, are in Egypt. They're suffering under oppression. Moses has been in Midian, uh, away from Egypt, for 40 years. And uh, at this point, he's in the wilderness with uh, his father-in-law's sheep, and he comes to a mountain, Horeb. And there, he encounters the Lord. He he sees a, a bush burning, but it doesn't burn up. He encounters the angel of the Lord. He hears the voice of the Lord, and he learns that God is actually going to rescue his people from Egypt. And then God turns and says, I'm going to send you to do it, to go and to confront Pharaoh, to go and to lead the people out. And when Moses hears it, he doesn't turn over cartwheels. He doesn't rejoice. He actually objects. And we started looking at that last week. We looked at the first two objections, which were questions. He, first he asks, who am I? Moses knows he's a failure. Moses knows he's a fugitive. Moses knows that he's weak. It, it seems like somebody else would be a better fit for this job. But God responds to him, I am with you. In other words, it actually doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who I am. And then Moses goes on and asks, what's your name? It's not like God hadn't introduced himself already. If you look back in chapter 3, before that question ever comes up, the Lord says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses should, that should ring all kinds of bells in Moses' head. But he says, what's your name? What am I supposed to tell them? What's your story? What should I say? I got nothing. Well, the Lord 
not only gives him a name, I am, but also explains his purposes and his power. The, the whole character and story of God is, is wrapped up in his name. And then he guarantees victory over Egypt, that they will leave and they will take the spoils, they will plunder the Egyptians. And then we get to chapter 4, and Moses just keeps going, doesn't he? He's not quite finished yet. And all the while, God remains patient. I mean, who else is patient like this? Not me. Not us. If you live on the other side of the tracks, I mean, literally, on the other side of the train tracks that are right there parallel with Madison, uh, I was coming along. I was like, I'm going to get there nice and early. I'm going to get there probably at 10 after 8. And then the longest train in human history, you know, comes along. I think they pile them up just for when I happen to be driving down Edgewood. And so it comes by, and this is a time when many people would lose their patience, wouldn't it? They're not going to be patient with that. Or when the light turns green and the person in front of you seems to still be checking their text. <laughs> or when you're supposed to get that refund, you know, from, from the government for your taxes, and it seems awful slow in coming. Or when your child is just supposed to do the chore. And instead, they decide that it's time for the Inquisition. Why should I do this? Why should I do this now? How do I do this? Can you make them help me? Can I wait until later? What is a vacuum cleaner exactly? <laughs> and we tend to get to the end of our rope, don't we? But mercifully, God doesn't. God doesn't get to the end of His rope with with Moses. He's so very patient with us. Even once God's anger is stirred, He still continues to be merciful toward this weak and doubting servant. He's already objected twice, and He's going to go on and object two more times, this time not with questions but with statements. And the first in chapter 4 is, they will not believe me. Moses answered, verse 1, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, they did not appear to you. Now, notice the issue. The issue isn't necessarily that they won't believe that the Lord appeared. They would know from being told over and over and over and over again around the campfire and on their grandfather's knee how God had appeared to Abraham. God had appeared to Isaac. God had appeared to Jacob. God had appeared over and over again. It's this tradition would have been passed down over and over. No, Moses, Moses' problem seems to be this. They're not going to believe me, that you appeared to me, that you're sending me. He says, they won't listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. I remember you. Aren't you the guy who killed the Egyptian? Do you remember that rejection? We've looked at it a number of times just since it happened because it seems like a key moment. Chapter 2, verse 14, they say to him, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Maybe these words are ringing in his ears. I don't know. Maybe they're lingering in his mind. But how could God ever use me? They're not going to believe me. He's somewhat stuck on himself where he comes up short. And actually, God responds by turning his attention away from himself, prying his eyes off of the mirror and turning them toward heaven. And the Lord does it with these three signs. 
Okay, they're called signs in verse 9. Down in verse 21, they're called miracles or wonders. And signs and wonders is a phrase that you see fairly often in the Bible. And if you're going to distinguish between the two, they go together, but if you're going to distinguish between the two, wonders are something that grab your attention. And signs are things that say something. Okay? So wonders captivate Signs communicate. And certainly these are wonders. I mean, how many of you in your life have seen a stick become a snake, apart from in the imagination of some little boy? But what is it that is the message of these signs? Well, let's just think about them. The first sign is that Moses' staff becomes a serpent. God commands him to throw down his staff. It becomes a serpent. And Moses at that point does what probably many of us would do. Verse 3, and Moses ran from it. That seems like the logical thing to do when the stick that you drop down becomes a snake. I mean, serpents incite fear. Their speed and their power are intimidating. Later in the Bible, the Lord actually sends serpents as a form of judgment, and when they bite, they kill. So no wonder Moses is going to run. But the Lord stops him and says, pick, up, pick it up by the tail. <laughs> it seems like a silly thing. I've never actually picked up a... If you're a guest here, we don't handle snakes in this church. So I don't, actually, I don't know that I've ever actually picked one up. I think I've touched a snake while somebody else was holding it. But it doesn't seem like if you have a snake that could bite and kill you, you need to pick it up by the tail because that thing is going to whip around and strike. But when he picks it up, the life-threatening serpent becomes an impotent, impotent staff again. And that's where the message lies. Pharaoh's venom is deadly. He's oppressing God's people. He wears a headdress that resembles a cobra as a symbol of his authority. And this great king, this great enemy, this snake will be snatched up by the tail and he'll be defeated and overthrown by the power of God through the servant of God, Moses. In the next sign, Moses' hand becomes leprous. Uh, you'll see that uh, in verse 6. The Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And when he took it out, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, leprosy is a word that's actually used to talk about a, a wide variety of skin diseases in the Bible. Um, most likely, this was not what we know as leprosy, Hansen's disease, but it was some other skin disease, the snowy white. Uh, uh, you nurses you can, and doctors, you can make guesses as to what this was, but uh, most likely it was, not, it was not leprosy. Either way, the whole notion of leprosy in in Egypt was thought to be an incurable disease. It was, uh, it was actually common in Egypt, but no power could touch it. Nothing could cleanse it. And if you think about it, this sign may have impacted Moses even more than the first. I mean, after all, the serpent is outside him. He can run away from that. But this one is in him, and he can't do anything. 
But again, the sign is a message about the power of God. God is not just going to overthrow the Egyptian Pharaoh. He's going to make his people whole. He is going to cleanse them. He is going to make them new like the hand coming out of Moses' cloak the second time. And whatever infection being in Egypt and in that Egyptian worldview may have, may have had, God's power can cleanse them and bring them to newness. Now, if you think about it, these first two signs and their messages, if, you just, if we just listen carefully to them, you'll hear echoes of the gospel. You'll hear echoes of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one was about God overthrowing His people's enemy. And friends, our great enemies, sin, death, hell, the devil himself, the serpent from the garden, are against us. Their power is overwhelming. They can't be stopped. We can't defeat them. But... Jesus has defeated them. When He was raised from the dead, He snatched the devil, devil by the tail, as it were. Death is dead, and sin is impotent, and hell is conquered, and the serpent's head was crushed. And then think about this cleansing of the hand. The Bible tells us that whoever trusts in Jesus that those people are actually washed in the blood of Jesus, meaning we're forgiven of sins. Our, uh, the, the reality is, is that our slate can be clean. Our sin is like scarlet, but Jesus can wash it as white as snow. Our record can be expunged as far as the east is from the west. That's how far sin is removed by Jesus. That's good news because we who are filthy in sin can be cleansed. And you see, the thing is you can't scrub off this skin disease. In 2003, I was diagnosed with melanoma. And do you know what the doctor didn't say to me? Now go home and take a really hot bath and really scrub at that thing. No, you know what he did? He called up the surgeon and said, we need to make an appointment. Why? Someone outside of me was going to have to remove that thing if it was going to be removed. I couldn't just wash it off. And actually, the same thing is true with our sin. We may scrub it with good deeds all we want. We may put it in a hot bath of philanthropy or kindness or generosity but nothing will remove the spot except the heavenly surgeon, Jesus Christ, who will come and remove it. He can cleanse your infection and mine. Now these, coming back to Exodus 4, these two signs really should be enough, shouldn't they? They should be enough. That's what actually God says in verse 8. If they don't believe the first, they should believe the latter. But we're weak, aren't we? We doubt. We're constantly wanting assurance. 
We're constantly wanting something else. And God knows this, and God even accommodates it. He says in verse 9, look at it, If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is like an exclamation point on the other signs. The water becomes Blood. Now, in the Egyptian culture, the Nile was a symbol of fertility. Any hope of life and provision and sustenance is tied to the Nile River. But God is saying there's a power greater than the Nile River. God made this river. God controls this river. This river is not sovereign over your life. This river is not sovereign over your crops. Life and death are in the Lord's hands, not the Nile's hands. You see, God takes this symbol of life and turns it into a symbol of death, demonstrating His sovereign power over both. This is a God that we should believe. This is a God that we should obey. This is a God we should listen to. This is not a God you call over into the corner and you say, now are you sure you know what you're doing? The God who overcomes enemies, the God who can cleanse your soul, the God who has the power of life and death, this is the God in whose hands you want to be. Don't be anywhere else. Don't walk around thinking your life is in your hands because it's not ultimately. It's in the Lord's hands. Moses says, they won't believe me. And God says, they'll believe me and my signs. So, stop thinking about yourself, Moses. Stop thinking about your reputation, your abilities, your power, and rest in me. (laughs) But as we see, Moses isn't quite prepared to do that yet, is he? Because he goes on to say, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I am not eloquent. Moses says, I'm not a man of words. Now, this isn't about a speech impediment. This is about his ability to reason, to convince, to argue, to stand before Pharaoh and say something cogent, to be convincing. You know, some people can think on their feet. They can, they can reply with great wisdom and skill to every question and every objection that's thrown at them. And Moses is saying, I'm not that guy. I, I wasn't that way before I came to this mountain, God. And I'm not this way even after encountering you. I haven't improved at all. It's a subtle jab at God, isn't it? It's as if Moses wants God to know that not even this glorious encounter has changed me. I am no different. I am the still the same Moses. I still can't talk so good. And God responds. Verse 11, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. This is what Jesus says to the disciples when he sends them out, isn't it? When you stand before them, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will help you. 
What God is saying here is that He is the one who gives gifts as He wants. He is sovereign over weaknesses. He puts mouths and tongues inside people's heads. And there is no weakness of ours that hinders His power. Now, we should think about that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ when we begin to conjure up excuses for not sharing the gospel with others, shouldn't we? Well, I, I, I'm just not, I, I'm just, this, this isn't my gift. I'm just not skilled at this. I'm not eloquent. I can't answer every question. Lord, I'm not a wordsmith. And the Lord answers, I didn't ask you to be. I said, Go. And say what I've said. And share what I've done. And be faithful in doing it. God tells Moses, I will be with your mouth. It actually echoes what he said back in chapter 3. When he said, I will be with you. I will be with every part of you, Moses. There's nothing that you will face that will be too much so long as you remember that. But Moses keeps missing the point, doesn't he? The call of God won't be accomplished by Moses' power, Moses' abilities, or his ingenuity, or his eloquence. It won't be accomplished ultimately by Moses at all. It will be accomplished by God. Now, stop. At the very beginning, I said, this is an odd text for motherhood, isn't it? And yet I want you to think about what God is saying to Moses. Some of you who are mothers, you understand your weaknesses, don't you? You know where you've failed. You clearly see your inabilities. You're overwhelmed at the task. And then... To make matters worse, you decide to get on social media and look at other people's posts. And here's a mother who is posting about her son's SAT score, which was through the roof. And then there, there's a mother who's uh, proudly saying that her daughter can recite the entire book of Hebrews in Greek. <laughs> and then, and it just goes on and on, doesn't it? Nobody, no, nobody, nobody posts about the F on the math exam. Nobody posts a picture of little Billy in cuffs being taken away by the police. You see how the silver just sets off his eyes? Isn't that nice? Nobody does that. We only put accomplishments there. We only put things that we will, will draw, draw the likes and the way to goes. But as you look at those things, it seems that your weakness and failure are magnified, isn't it? But remember two things. First, very simply, that social media is not real life. But beyond that, remember this. The call of motherhood and raising a child is not a task that will be fulfilled in a way that it hinges on you or on ideal circumstances, or on your ability to read every quote-unquote gospel-centered book on motherhood, as helpful as some things can be. The power to fulfill your call 
rests in God alone. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Don't, don't, moms, don't go to the mirror asking, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest mother of them all? Hoping that the mirror will say you are. Don't go to social media with your pics and your posts wanting people to affirm you. Go to the Lord, knowing that when you are weak, He is strong. That's what Moses keeps missing. That's what keeps going in one ear and out the other. And so it brings him to this point in verse 13 where he says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, the text literally reads, Send by whose hand you will send. So it's an awkward phrase. It either means this right here, send someone else, or it's a kind of throwing his hands up in the air and saying, Do whatever you want. But either way, it's an expression of unbelief. After all that God's done, after all that God said, after all that God has shown Moses, he still won't believe. Some people walk around and they think, if I could just have a sign, right? If I could just have a sign, if God would just speak to me audibly, then I'd really believe. Well, just look at Moses. He's not doing any good with this. He's got direct words from God. He's got signs coming out his ears. And he's still saying, I, I, don't, I don't trust you. This is when God's anger is kindled. Not because Moses doubts himself. Not because Moses doubts his abilities. Not because Moses doubts his power. But because Moses doubts God. And even in the midst of that, God is still going to accommodate Moses. What an amazing God we serve, isn't he? Listen, verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. That's fine. You know Aaron. You remember him? I'll bring him along. Now, in the unfolding of the story, Aaron kind of looks like plan B, doesn't he? I mean, you just read it. You think, well, God may be sitting on his throne thinking, well, I'm not going to get it done the way I wanted to, so I need to find something. I need to figure something out, so I'm going to go plan B. Let's bring in Aaron. Well, you see, friends, the thing is, is that as you read the Bible, you learn very quickly that in, in God's mind, there is no plan B. There is accommodation to weakness, but even that is not plan B. God is prepared for this moment. You see, God knows Moses. He knows him through and through. He knows his struggles. He knows his doubts. He knows his unbelief. And he knew all of this long before Moses was ever born. So that three years before Moses is even born and then put into the basket and put into the river, you know who came along? Aaron. You know what God did with Aaron? Gifted him to speak. Gave him the abilities that Moses 
believes are necessary, but doesn't have. Isn't that wonderful? In Matthew chapter 6, God says to his disciples, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer is not an informing of God about the things that I need. Prayer is more the recognition of my need in the presence of God. God did not need me to tell him of this need and of that need. God knows your need before you ever ask him. God knows us like he knew Moses, and he provides. Fifteen years ago, God called Susan, my wife, and me to adopt from Liberia. Now, there were all manner of problems with that plan. And if you had given us a piece of paper, we could have written down said problems on that piece of paper. I won't talk about all of them with you. I just want to mention one. There was a financial problem. You see, contrary to uh, popular belief, uh, all pastors are not rich. And, and we, if you were to look up in the dictionary, I think dictionaries still existed 15 years ago. If you were to look up in the dictionary the word broke, we would have been there. We had nothing in the bank account. We had not saved for this moment. We had not worked for years and years thinking one day we would adopt. But our bank account was empty. International adoption is very expensive. And I refused to ask our congregation to help in any way. So actually, we went out and we bought a little book called The Autobiography of George Mueller. And we started reading that out loud at night and just praying for the Lord. We, we decided we would adopt the Mueller method of adoption fundraising, which was we will tell the Lord and no one else. I remember along the way there was a man named Alan, very uh, just loving and generous man in the congregation. He actually walked with a cane. He, he had a disease and he walked up to me and he said, and he's shaking his finger in my hand and he says, now, Toby, you tell me how much you need right now. I said, Alan, I love you, but no, I've told the Lord. He'll take care of it. And do you know that we watched as the Lord provided every penny that was needed for every form, every government thing, every, 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 including provision that we couldn't come, that started long before adoption ever got onto our radar. 
It started with a couple. They were an aging couple. And they started save. They had a bunch of frequent flyer miles that they just saved and saved and saved and saved. And they thought one day, I think we'll bless my daughter and son-in-law by gifting these frequent flyer miles to them. Well, this couple in God's providence ends up coming and joining the little church in Nashville that I'm pastoring. And then the news comes up and they start thinking and they come to us one day and they say, you know, our, my, 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 my parents gave us these frequent flyer miles, but my husband owns his own business. And when I say owns his own business, I mean he is the business. So using these to go somewhere is probably really not realistic for us. I don't know if it would help at all, but could we just give those to you? And do you know that those frequent flyer miles were enough for my round-trip ticket and for our daughter's one-way ticket home? And they were with the only airline that we could find at the time. They were with the only airline we could find that had a sister airline that would actually get us all the way to Liberia. Then one of the ladies, you, you know, we get the great news and we do the thing, and then we get we get notification from the uh, from the from the uh, from the airline that we're going to have to pay something. Is it like two hundred fifty dollars or something in taxes? I said we don't have two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, they they give me eggs and bread for preaching. I they you know I don't have two hundred fifty dollars. Uh, they didn't actually give me eggs and bread. So anyway, someone in this lady's office area. Here's this whole story. She has been. She's a, a, a Catholic lady. She's been praying to the saint to Saint Georgia, praying to her for years, years and years. And then the moment. Georgia's name was spoken. She said, well, I'm paying for those taxes. And she got out her checkbook right there and wrote the check. And the taxes were paid. Provision is seeing ahead what will be needed and making arrangements so that it's there. That's what God did for us. And actually, that's what God did for Moses, isn't it, in Aaron? God, God is not surprised. God is not thrown into confusion. God's not wondering, well, what am I supposed to do now? He's saying, just send someone else. No, no, no. 83 years earlier, Aaron. It's a wonderful thing, and it's even more wonderful when you think of the fact that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is just like that, that provision. You see, in the unfolding of human history, if you just read the Bible at the beginning and you keep going, you may start to think that Jesus was plan B because, you know, man falls and then continually fails. But the sin of mankind does not throw God looking for another way. The solution was there before the problem ever existed. 
the death of Jesus, his resurrection, forgiveness, salvation, it was all set in stone before you and I ever breathed our first breath, before creation ever came to be. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is God's loving provision for weak and sinful people like us. And so this scene comes to a close, and Moses begins to go off the mountain. And it's as if God says, Moses, don't forget your staff. Don't forget your staff. Verse 17, God says, take in your hand the staff that you may do the works with them. This, 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 uh, this staff is, you know, comes up in the story quite often, but it's this ordinary staff, this lowly shepherd's staff will be the vehicle of God's power, a constant reminder that God's power is perfected in Moses' weakness. Indeed, you might say it's a kind of representation of Moses himself, that even as Moses takes the, sta the powerless staff in his hand, God takes powerless Moses into his hand. And so it is for you and for me, isn't it? God sets us down where he wants us. He calls us to himself. We're in his hand. He calls us to honor Him, to bring Him glory in your family, through your job and your friendships and ministry to the world. And then we, we see ourselves and we see the call God has placed on us and we begin to put up our hand and to make objections. Who am I, God? Nobody's going to listen to me. I'm not gifted like other people. And our patient God, thousands of years ago, has this story written down to remind us that we are not the key to our success. We're powerless sticks. It's the hand that holds us, that wields us, that uses us, God's hand that makes all the difference. What we must be is fully His. In... Um, this sermon from Francis Schaeffer called No Little People, No Little Places. Uh, Schaeffer recounts all the many ways that the staff of God, the rod of God, uh, comes up in the story. And, and then he says this. He says, if you will, uh, the, the phrase, God so used a stick of wood, can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. And he finishes by saying, Every Christian is to be a rod of God and the place of God for him. We must remember throughout our lives that in God's sight there are no little people and no little places. Only one thing is important, to be consecrated persons in God's place for us at each moment. Those who think of themselves as little people in little places, if committed to Christ and living under His Lordship in the whole of life, may, by God's grace, change the flow of our generation. We are not the key to success. We are but sticks in the hands of a sovereign God, and only His power will assure that His work, whether it is motherhood or anything else, will be accomplished for His glory.
Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we plead with you to give us grace that in the midst of our doubting ourselves and our abilities, and even rightly so because we are weak and frail and limited, that we would trust you, that we would be consecrated to you. Lord, I pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, that they would see a God who is patient See a God who will overthrow their greatest enemies, the enemies to their soul. We'll see a God whose Son will cleanse them from sin. And we'll see that this was your plan from all eternity. And we who are believers in Jesus, that we will see that where you have placed us and what you have called us to may be quite overwhelming. It may boggle our minds. It may leave us at the end of our ropes, but that you are never at the end of yours. And so rather than loathe ourselves in weaknesses, help us to boast in our weaknesses, for when we are weak, you are strong, Lord. So that in our workplaces, as mothers, as fathers, as friends, that we would do that which you've called us to do by your power, for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.